Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from the snows of the Ardennes and a family tragedy to the beaches of Dunkirk and a pioneering pilot who helped launch the Windrush generation. We begin this week with this from Kevin Milan. Hello, Alan James. My dad shared few memories of his wartime experiences. We learned more through his letters saved by my mother and shared with us upon his death. Here is his story. On December the 17th, 1944, my dad, George Milan, and his twin Joseph were serving in the heavy weapons platoon of HQ Company, 1st Battalion, 82nd Airborne Division. The division was in France, recuperating from Operation Market Garden, when they received word of the German breakthrough in the Ardennes. Within hours, they were on their way to Belgium. George and Joseph were identical twins, two of six children raised in Queens, New York. Growing up, the twins were inseparable, so they volunteered for the army together. They were enrolled in the Army Specialised Training Programme that trained talented enlisted men to become officers. After the Normandy invasion, the army needed replacement infantry, so the programme was shut down. My dad and his brother were given the choice of the infantry replacement pool, or the airborne. They were allowed to stay together if they joined the airborne, plus the added jump pay was a big motivator. They shipped off to England, where they took a rush airborne training programme before they were assigned to the mortar platoon of HQ Company, 1st Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment. They served together, my dad as a member of a mortar team and Joseph as a lineman maintaining communications with forward observers. They served in Holland during Market Garden and then came the Bulge. Their battalion was sent to Trois-Ponts where they set up a defensive line on the Salm River. The 505th fended off multiple attempts by 1st SS Panzer to force their way across the Salm. Several of the HQ Company's bazooka teams were captured by the SS and subsequently executed. The regiment was withdrawn after Christmas to a line that tied in better with flanking units. Based on our dad's letters, 
as well as one from his brother, we think he was wounded late December by fire from a Nebelwerfer. He was evacuated to a field hospital, then later to a recovery hospital near Paris. Joseph participated throughout the rest of the Battle of the Bulge while my dad recovered from his wounds. In February 1945, the 1st, 505th, was engaged in fighting around Schmidt, Germany, as part of Operation Grenade. While under heavy artillery and machine gun fire, Joseph volunteered to repair a communications line to the mortar platoon's forward observation post. While repairing the line, Joseph was killed. The Catholic chaplain for the 505th, Father Philip Hannon, witnessed Joseph's death. In his memoirs, Father Hannon recounted how Joseph was struck by a direct hit. Joseph received the Silver Star for his actions. My dad did not know of his brother's death until his return to his unit in late February. My dad continued on, joining the advance through Germany and received a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart for his service. He helped in the liberation of Wobelin concentration camp where he assisted Father Hannon with last rites for the many dying Polish victims. Since my dad did not have enough points to rotate home early after the German surrender, he went to Berlin, serving in the occupation of the city. There was very little of his wartime experiences that my father ever shared with his five children. At my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, we heard some stories related by dad's good friend in the 82nd, Jim Chenoweth. Jim told us of a time when my dad was posted on a 30 caliber machine gun overlooking a large field that held many German prisoners. My dad was shaken when the prisoners started shouting and gesturing to a nearby tree line. He looked over and saw a deer. The Germans kept shouting and gesturing towards the deer, indicating that they wanted him to shoot the deer so that they could be fed. This was an unwise thing for the prisoners to encourage, as my dad was still angered by his brother's death. He cocked the thirty cal and swung it towards the shouting prisoners. That quieted them immediately, and Bambi and the Germans went unharmed. In the years before his death, at the age of 86, he opened up a bit to my younger brother, since they lived nearby and spoke often. My dad said he was most scared when they had to cross the Elbe on rubber assault boats in April 45. He also recalled how, as a forward observer, he saw through his binoculars a German forward observer staring back at him. Neither my dad or the German FO directed rounds on one another's position. He also told of a time in Berlin when he was escorting German POWs in a large truck to a work detail. They were passed by a column of Russian cavalrymen, the last of whom pitched a grenade into the back of the truck, killing and injuring most of the POWs. My dad was unhurt, as was the truck driver. I'm sure the pain he experienced with the death of his twin brother was the main cause of his reluctance to talk about his service. He retired after nearly 40 years at IBM, my mum was anxious to travel. She wanted to go to Europe, but my dad flatly refused. I've been to Europe, was his only response. That was from Kevin Milan. Our next story comes from Jonathan Woodhead. Dear Alan James, my great-uncle Edward Jack Woodhead left school as the First World War was ending. He was a farmer in Derbyshire, but in the early 1930s retrained as a yacht captain and ended up living in Camper and Nicholson's yard in Southampton. When war came, he was too old for initial conscription, but volunteered as a Royal Navy sailor 
under the T-124X agreement, where sailors came under the command of the Navy, but were essentially civilians sailing their own ships. Much of Operation Dynamo was organised this way. His ship was the Gulzar, built in 1934, a modern schooner rigged twin screw yacht. It famously sailed from Antibes in July 1938, with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor for a tour around the Mediterranean. The ship was owned by a gambling syndicate based in Paris. After initial kitting out in Portsmouth, Jack was sent to HMS Lynx, port of Dover, where he caught up with Gulzar. During the Battle for France, Gulzar acted as a radio relay ship and then as part of minesweeping operations. On the night of the 26th and 27th of May 1940, Gulzar was tasked to rescue any survivors of the BEF after the fall of Calais. Gulzar entered Calais Harbour late at night and found 47 survivors by the eastern breakwater. The ship slowed as much as possible, but did not stop. Unfortunately, this rescue was observed by German troops, and Gulzar came under significant enemy fire. She revved up and headed for home. One of those rescued was George Lamborn, the artist whose work hangs in the Imperial War Museum. A few days later, Gulzar, with Jack as coxswain, took part in the Dunkirk evacuation, rescuing 563 people on four trips to France. For his efforts, Jack was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal, which he collected from the King on VE Day in 1945. What a day to be in London! HMS Gulzar was later destroyed in an air raid on Dover Harbour in July 1940, and Jack returned to farming and civil defence work. He didn't have any children, so his story has passed down through nephews and great-nephews. All the best, Jonathan Woodhead. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. 
Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and gift mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Our next story this week comes from Eddie Smythe. John Henry Smythe, Johnny to his friends, was born in Sierra Leone in 1915. When Britain declared war on Germany, the colour bar in the RAF was lifted. After the Battle of Britain, the RAF needed men particularly for bomber command. Thus, it started recruiting from the black colonies. Johnny volunteered to join the RAF, and after various tests and exams, was accepted and travelled to Britain in 1941, where he commenced training as a pilot. He was soon flying solo. However, during this period of the bombing campaign, accuracy was extremely poor. Only one bomb in every payload fell within five miles of the target, a statistic that was never published. It was decided that specialist navigators needed to be introduced into the crew to ensure better targeting. Trainee pilots with good mathematical ability were converted to navigators, and Johnny was one of those. He joined a fresh crew and started training on the RAF's first four-engine bomber, the short Sterling. Once the crew was deemed ready, bombing missions commenced, and on Johnny's 27th flight over Germany, his plane was struck by anti-aircraft fire. A shell exploded beneath the plane, sending shards of flying metal through the fuselage and one engine. A piece of metal pierced Johnny's abdomen and went straight through his side. He took some morphine to kill the pain, and even though one engine had stopped, they continued to the target and dropped their bombs. They turned back for Britain, but were spotted by a German night fighter which strafed the plane. The captain gave the order to bail out and Johnny landed in a field. He hid his parachute, stole a bicycle and rode as far away as he could. Exhausted from his ordeal and loss of blood, he saw a barn and went to get some sleep. He was spotted and soldiers were called, who shot into the barn, causing him to surrender. Following the complete amazement of the guards in seeing a six-foot-four-inch black man in an officer's RAF uniform, he was brutally interrogated. After this, he was sent to Stalagluft I, where he was to spend the next 18 months. After the war, he was seconded to the colonial office in London. Some of his duties were to look after the welfare of Caribbean and African men who were about to leave the RAF. It was in this capacity that he travelled on the Empire Windrush as the senior officer on board. The ship took ex-RAF men back to the Caribbean, but in Jamaica, the final island with the largest contingent of men, it was clear that the economy was bad and unemployment figures high. Some men chose to come back to Britain, and there were other ex-RAF men already in Jamaica, along with civilians who wanted to return to Britain. It was Johnny who classified them, and wrote a report which was wired back to the colonial office with his recommendations relating them to returning to Britain. This led to the start of what we now know as the Windrush generation. Back in London, Johnny qualified as a barrister, married his fiancée, who he met while in London, and then returned to Sierra Leone, where he worked for the government. He rose quickly through the ranks and became Solicitor General and Acting Attorney General. In this capacity, he did a tour of the USA where he was a guest at the famous Martin Luther King Civil Rights Rally in Washington. It's worth noting that notwithstanding his loyalty in choosing to fight for the British Empire, Johnny helped to write the constitution for the new independent country of Sierra Leone. Johnny moved back to the UK after his retirement to live near his sons and died in 1996. He's buried at St Mary's Church in Tame, Oxfordshire. That was from Eddie Smythe.
Our next story this week is from Bill Robertson. Dear Alan James, this is the story of Alexander William Finlay. Alex was born just a few miles from me in the town of Inverurie, Aberdeenshire, on the 28th of June 1898. I first learned about him when I started tracing my family tree. His mother, Elizabeth Robertson, was born in my village and is my great-grand-aunt. Alex joined the army in 1913 as a boy soldier. He served with the 6th Gordon Highlanders and was wounded at Arras in 1917. After recovering from his wounds, he went back to the front only to be taken prisoner during Operation Michael in March 1918, having been wounded again, this time by a German grenade, which left him with shrapnel embedded in his arm and leg. Conditions for POWs were grim, but despite his wounds, Alex survived and came back to Scotland. He got engaged to Peggy, and they decided to start a new life in Western Australia. But when war came again, Alex lied about his age and enlisted on the 25th of October 1940. He was aged 43. He became a member of the 2nd 4th Machine Gun Battalion and was sent to Singapore. During the initial Japanese landing, elements of the battalion were engaged around the landing beaches. Heavily outnumbered, they were pushed back towards the centre of the island. They suffered heavy casualties and subsequently became prisoners when Singapore fell. They spent time in Changi, then Johor Bahru. Then on the 17th of March 1943, the men began a five-day horror train trip to Thailand. Conditions were terrible, with men forced to stand crammed into freight cars, taking turns to sit. It was unbearably hot during the days, and the nights were freezing. In the first week of May, the men arrived at Brancassi Camp, where they started work on the infamous Thai-Burma Railway. In his diary, Major Alf Cuff, the battalion CEO, described how the Japanese are pushing the men and they are working longer hours, some are collapsing from malnutrition and exhaustion. Most of the men succumbed to dysentery or malaria. However, one prisoner, Private Bill Dwyer, met a more horrific end. A Japanese corporal, known to the men as the Black Cat, beat Dwyer unconscious, then pushed bamboo sticks into his eyes and ears. From July to August 1943, the men worked at Hindane Camp. Major Cuff vividly described the conditions. This camp is just hell. The whole area a sea of black, stinking mud. Very little food and men dying every day. For the last weeks we have eaten nothing but rice and dried fish. For three weeks prior, we had rice and dried cabbage at the rate of one cupful, plus a dessert spoon full of fish or cabbage. The men cannot last much longer unless we get decent food and medical supplies. I'm tired of reading burial services and watching my men die without being able to lift a hand to help them. They're full of courage and keep their chins up until the last moment. On the 19th of January 1944, Alex finally succumbed to malaria. His body was later reinterned in Kanchanaburi War Cemetery. His body was later reinterred in Kanchanaburi War Cemetery. I often wonder what was going through Alex's mind that day in October 1940. He'd done more than enough in the First World War to justify sitting out the second. He could have enjoyed the new life he'd built for himself and his family in Australia, yet when the time came, he answered the call to arms and paid the highest price. Kind regards, Bill Robertson. Our final story this week comes from Olver Crocknes. My grandfather, Alfred Wren, took part in the first Norwegian offensive of the war. Alfred was 21 when called up for neutrality watch on the Soviet border in February 1940. His battalion was one of several to make sure the war between the Soviet Union and Finland didn't bleed into Norway. 
Daily ski patrols in the freezing cold made the soldiers tough and incredibly good skiers. It also melded the battalion into a fighting unit, something that can't really be said for many Norwegian formations in the chaotic days of the German invasion. As the Norwegian army was an army of reservists with about 70 days training, a lot of the soldiers who were called up weren't ready to fight. My grandfather's battalion was sent to Kirkeens. By April the village was full of the first Scots guards. The British were in a good mood and shouted to the Norwegians that they could take the Germans along the road if the Norwegians took them in the mountains. At 0200 hours on the 19th of April, Alfred's company was sent south. The weather was foul, heavy snow and dark. They had to clear the way for an offensive against the German positions on Laphaugen and Grattansbotten. This would be the first Norwegian offensive in the war, and my grandfather's battalion would be the blocking force to keep German units from escaping south towards Narvik. The march was plagued by continuous blizzards, so the soldiers were exhausted, cold and soaking wet. They dug in at Grattingen, but were ordered into the houses for the freezing night. Alfred thought it was a bad idea to leave such good positions, but orders were orders and they went to find lodgings. Although sentries were set up and patrols sent out, it allowed the Germans to surround the Norwegian battalion in their houses. The German assault started early on the 25th. The Germans provided crossfire from the higher positions, while assault groups attacked from lower in the valley. As they entered houses, they captured soldiers and civilians who were used as human shields in their advance. Alfred was in a barn when the attack started. Bullets from German machine guns came crashing through the walls. Several of his mates and a cow were hit. Alfred grabbed his skis and a machine gun. They were under orders not to let the Germans capture such weapons. On his way out of the crossfire, he had to ski over fallen comrades. He said he volunteered to hold the enemy back while his mates withdrew. During his flight, he ended upside down in a hole, hanging from his skis. He said the noise and explosions were all-consuming. 34 Norwegians were killed that day, 64 wounded and 180 taken prisoner. The Germans withdrew to the south, leaving Grattingen in Norwegian hands. Even so, it was a defeat for the Norwegians. Alfred fought until the capitulation in June. My mother told me that when he got the participation medal given to all who fought in the 1940 campaign, he threw it in a stream. She said she thinks he regretted it. The diploma that followed with the medal was at least framed on the wall when I was little. That was from Olva Crockness. Thank you, Olva. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the member's site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.